from the White Letter Production Studios in Los Angeles, California. I'm Ellie Unger-Sargon, and this is The Cut Podcast. Does anybody have a specific question, yeah. or did and you want to open Apologies the... again for the technical difficulties. Uh, if my mom knew about them, she'd say it's because God disapproves of what I'm doing. <laughs> you know, I think we all heard the film pretty well. Okay. It worked out. Who wants to... St- Dan? Uh, I have quite a few comments I'll, I and questions, but I'll just ask a couple first and then let other people. Uh, Dr. Max Mazels, the pediatric urologist, referred to the foreskin as an anomaly. I need to look up that word. I've been meaning to for years, but I believe it means sort of like a possibly not really shouldn't be there type thing, or <laughs> what, what, what does anomaly mean? Anomaly means something that's not normal or usual. And um, what he was, I believe, referring to was that in children who have hypospadias, the foreskin looks anomalous because it's malformed. Um, I think that's what he was getting at. Well, I hope that's what he was getting what, at and not what you seem to think no, he meant. I, I think that, that, and I find it really shocking that he would do it because what they do with the hypospadias is they're trying to close the hole with tissue that is um, mucosal because it's used to the moisture and stuff like that. So they're using the inner foreskin and stuff to help close up wherever that thing is. So he's referring to the foreskin as though it's just this useless thing. And he's a, he's a urologist. Right. (laughs) You know, so I find that very strange. Well, and of course we know that pediatric urologists spend a lot of their time fixing so-called botched circumcisions, um, which, you know, just means that they, I mean, this is in our culture. If you don't, if you get circumcised and it needs to be fixed, it means that they didn't take off all the foreskin or enough or that the parents aren't happy with the appearance of the penis um, and pediatric urologists deal with this all the time they're constantly quote unquote fixing uh, bad circumcisions another uh, comment is and I've obviously seen this movie many times the I assume you would call the the guy who is using the wine soaked handkerchief the sandak in this case even though he's not actually yeah angry. okay yeah. When he chokes the baby, he's all apologetic. Oh, he takes his hand out immediately trying to soothe the baby. And then when the circumcision starts, he's still trying to soothe. But he's not, he's not moving a muscle to try and, you know, <laughs> just the disconnect there that he, he, he wants to protect the baby from, from choking on the wine handkerchief in his finger. But the rest of it, that's okay. Well, I mean, I think if you look at, at him closely, and I don't want to be too you know, sort of critical. It's having been a Sandik, it's not an easy position to be in. Um, he was stroking the baby's head. He was clearly yes. trying to, to comfort in his small way what he could do for, I mean, you know, and he, he was clearly, he made a joke about it, which, you know, humor is one of those things that you find crops up around this practice a lot because people are generally uncomfortable with this. Um, so I don't want to be too harsh uh, in, in criticizing him. But, I, yeah, no, I mean, what are you going to do? He, he immediately pulled out his finger when the baby started choking, but didn't do anything to protect All the right. baby. Okay, and somebody else. I've got another question, but somebody else. 
I just uh, wanted to comment that during Dr. Marx's procedure, she strapped the baby down, Velcroed his legs in a straightened position to that board you saw called a circumstraint, which is shaped like a baby, so they can hold the baby down. And you know, a baby doesn't like that because it's been all curled up for nine months. And earlier in the film, in her office, she said, you know, the worst thing for the baby is they don't, they don't want to be monkeyed with, they don't like to be fussed with. That's when they start crying. Well, the baby was like sleeping peacefully with his legs bound to that board. And he started crying when she clamped a hemostat on his foreskin. So she's in denial, strong yeah. denial. Anybody have a comment or a question? Um, okay, mm -hmm. your hand was up, ma'am. Um, which looks like a circumcised penis. Anyway, just kidding, I'm like 12. Um, <laughs> um, I was wondering, what is the reason for not using any anesthetic? Like this like, drink your first drink when you're eight days old kind of thing, like mm -hmm. is clearly ineffective and even my sister, I'm Jewish, but my family's not. And so my sister had a son and I went to, to the hospital to visit and she's like, oh, he's getting his circumcision, Whis whisper, whisper. You know, it's swept away into another room, doesn't know what's happening. And it's even in hospitals, like regardless of Jewish practices, like why don't they do any other serious anesthetic? Like if they're going mm -hmm. to mutilate the baby anyway. Right. It's an excellent question. And there, there are two sort of parts to the answer I'm going to give to this. Number one is there's a long and um, shameful history in the medical profession of perpetuating the myth that babies don't feel pain. Uh, that belief is still, I mean, it's falling out of fashion now because there's actual hard scientific data that proves this wrong. Uh, there have been studies that were done in the 80s that conclusively demonstrated that babies being circumcised felt intense amounts of pain. Uh, they tested things like blood cortisol levels and of course famously uh, pain response to first inoculations uh, six months or a year after the circumcision in circumcised boys the pain response is much more dramatic than in uncircumcised boys so, so in short we now know for sure that babies feel intense pain during this procedure but it was a belief that was perpetuated in the medical profession for a long time that babies don't feel pain a corollary belief to this was that their nerves aren't uh, properly formed for a pain response. This is all nonsense. We know that. Um, another weird thing that, that uh, cropped up around this was the notion that if you give a baby uh, sucrose-infused water, that somehow that would have an anesthetic effect. So again, these are all red flags to me uh, as a person who's sort of looking at the medical profession and saying, you know, what exactly is going on here that, you know, they aren't exactly doing this for rational reasons. Um, but the second part uh, of my answer is that actually using um, anesthetic in and of itself uh, is, is a painful thing. The, uh, it's, it's been very hard to find an effective means of anesthetizing babies to circumcision. You'd think, you know, there would be a, a method. Uh, and all they have topical creams that are used sometimes. It's not entirely effective. In fact, in the, uh, the, one of the more prominent creams called Emla Cream, in their uh, sort of, I guess, the equivalent of their terms of service, whatever that is, the, it, they have a disclaimer in their official literature about the cream that says this will not necessarily get rid of all the pain from the circumcision. Um, I think, to the best of my understanding, the, the most effective method is what's called a dorsal penile block. Um, but... A dorsal penile block uh, involves using a pretty large gauge uh, syringe 
and injecting at the base of the penis, which again, in and of itself is a very painful thing, can lead to other kinds of complications. So the short answer is that um, there's controversy in the medical community about whether or not using anesthetic in and of itself causes pain. Um, the American Academy of Pediatrics, of course, sort of says that very strongly they think it should be used. Um, but it's, uh, you know, we're talking about, as you saw in the film, one of the most highly innervated parts of the body. Um, and uh, it's very difficult to achieve proper, um, you know, uh, proper uh, anesthesis or, um, you know, uh, it's, it's very difficult. It's, for whatever reason, proved very, very difficult. Um, and, yeah, I think there's an, a level of denial involved in people who do this on a regular basis and can say something like what Dr. Mark said at the beginning of the film. Uh, I know that uh, Colorado recently became uh, the last state to re uh, remove Medicaid coverage from for circumcision. Mm -hmm. uh, do you know if there are any other states that are looking into doing that? Well, there are 18 states currently that no longer have it, um, uh, that no longer fund circumcision through Medicaid. Uh, and I know that there are ongoing efforts in many other states by intactivists to continue that trend. It's a particularly uh, good time <laughs> to be doing this because the uh, argument from economics for an insurance company is particularly compelling. Um, and the same, of course, applies to, you know, Medicaid and Medicare. And um, So, yeah, I mean, that's ongoing. It's sort of an obvious, you know, the... The, the health insurance industry in this in this country, as far as I'm concerned, is completely superfluous. It's a $300 billion a year industry whose sole purpose is denying us coverage. Uh, I mean, that's, that's the bottom line about the health insurance industry in this country. The sort of perverse truth about it is when it comes to circumcision, if you can make a compelling argument to them that they don't need to be covering this, I think uh, many of them would be receptive to that. Um, having said that, you're also talking about a practice that's very, very deeply embedded in our culture. And just starting a conversation about it is challenging. So, yeah, but I think that that trend will continue as time goes by, despite the efforts of some circumcision proponents to reverse it. I actually have uh, three questions. I hope I don't take up too much time. First of all, I'd like to thank you for making this film. Um, first question, as someone who is looking at this movement, what is the best way to get active in it and go about it? I, I'm in college right now, and so what would you recommend as the most beneficial way? Okay, so um, you're sitting next to a very prominent intactivist, and um, there are many, um, many... I consider many intactivists to be very important teachers of mine. Some of them are sitting in this room, and some of them are sitting in this room and or in the film. Um, it's uh, very easy to get in touch with them. Um, they're always looking for new blood. Uh, if you go to places like No Cirque or Norm, um, Intact America is sort of a new kid on the block that's doing a lot of, a lot of work. Um, but it's not hard to find. And if you go to my website, cutthefilm.com, uh, there are links there uh, to a number of prominent intactivist organizations. Uh, I would say my recommendation is uh, think about what your particular um, talents are and what your particular interests and angle is on this particular subject and see how you can best uh, 
um, contribute. And a second part to that question, uh, let's say you're trying to convince someone not to do this. What, b besides getting them angry and having them just retreat, what is the best way that you would recommend to do that? So it's interesting, and again, we're, we're coming back to this sort of uh, issue of how I see myself and what is art and what is activism and do the two go hand in hand ever. And, um, you know, I, I, I see myself as, a, as an artist. And so I judge the success of my work not by how many people I'm able to persuade, but by the quality of the experience I'm able to give them. It's a small distinction, but sometimes it's significant. But my recommendation to you is um, to really study up on the subject. There's a lot to learn um, from many different disciplines. And the better armed you are with an arsenal of knowledge from multiple disciplines, the better you'll be able to react on the spot to a person. I mean, you have to intuit, you know, not everyone responds to the same things. You'll see, you'll notice that in my film, I spend a lot of time talking about um, the issue of male sexual experience, because for me, that's one of the central ethical problems with this practice is that a man who's subject to circumcision uh, has lifelong sexual consequences from the procedure. Um, and the fact that they live with that lifelong, as, as important as the pain and the trauma to the infant and the risks involved in the procedure are to me, what I think is really important is that even if a circumcision is done quote-unquote perfectly and there are no complications, you're still living without the most sensitive part of your penis and your penis has been immobilized. Um, but not everyone feels that way. And some people, when they watch the movie, tell me that the most important thing to them was the actual seeing of the circumcision itself. Um, so all this just to say that educate yourself uh, in a multidisciplinary faction, uh, fashion so that when you are going around talking to people, you can intuit what would be most um, uh, effective for the individual you're talking to. Uh, for my second question, uh, there was another movie about this somewhat recently released named Partly Private. I don't really know that much about it. Do you have any opinion on that? You know, I still have not seen it, to my, to my great shame. It did come out after my film. I still have not seen the film. I understand that um, the, the filmmaker was a woman, and she was having her second boy, and uh, the film was sort of a documentation about her doubts about the practice. But my understanding is that after a very long and, um, you know, sort of well-made film, she ends up circumcising her son. And if I'm mistaken about that, someone can correct me, but I think that's, that's the case. Um, and I, I also know that she stated publicly that, um, and her name is Dani Elon, um, she's an Israeli filmmaker, um, and she stated publicly that she was intentionally trying to avoid being explicit in the film and um, to avoid um, making moral judgments about the subject of circumcision, um, which is obviously not the way I think this subject should be talked about. Back to Dan Stranger. I want to follow up on John's question uh, and comments about Medicare, Medicaid rather. Um, even with the 18 states that theoretically don't pay for it, a lot of states in trying to control costs have enrolled Medicaid patients into HMOs and basically pay an insurance premium to the HMO, and that HMO may 
may well be willing to cut the child. And so you have a lot of children who are still being cut uh, through our tax money in states that have said, no, we're not going to pay for it. So that's, another, that's a problem. Illinois, the last time I looked, and I have talked to uh, Barbara Flynn Curry, who is my representative, and she's the Speaker of the House here. She won't touch this with a, you know, must be some good things about, you know, it's gonna prevent HIV and, you know, you don't wanna mark a poor child as, you know, being poor because he's not circumcised and all this kind of thing. But last time I saw it, and several years ago, um, Medicaid was paying about $199 to the doctor in Illinois. Now the University of Chicago, for example, charges about $600 normally if you don't have insurance. But they'll take the $199 if you're on Medicaid. Uh, so it's, it's a problem. You know, just regarding that movie, Partly Private, uh, Deny the maker of the, f the film was in Washington in 2008, was it? Uh, and she, she filmed our rally and came to a, a meeting of Restoring Men and filmed us there as well. So I've been told I'm in the movie, but I haven't seen it either. It was, it was shown on Canadian television uh, in a, like a slightly length lengthened uh, edit of it, but uh, somebody who saw it there said they saw me in it. Anybody else? First, I just want to apologize for my child <laughs> and all the distractions during the movie, um, motherhood. <laughs> um, I guess my question is mainly around, I mean, it's been a really big year, I think, for intactivism and all the media coverage and everything. Um, I guess I'd just like your thoughts on everything that happened with the, the measure in San Francisco and the um, Anti-Defamation League's response to, the, to that whole brouhaha. <laughs> sure. Um, well, it didn't end well, but maybe it did. Um, what happened was, you know, um, a gentleman by the name of Lloyd Schofield tried to get this, uh, for those who don't know, Lloyd Schofield in San Francisco, a resident of San Francisco, tried to get a ballot initiative, um, going. He had to collect, I think, uh, 7,000 signatures. He was able to, col to collect those signatures. It was originally on the ballot in San Francisco, and the, the bill would have made it illegal to circumcise uh, anyone under the age of 18 and a misdemeanor um, with a, a large fine, I think $2,000 or something like that, and then p potential jail time as well. Um, and it was defeated rather soundly. Um, and it was more than defeated. I'll get to that in a second. But um, uh, what happened was um, what I think uh, is arguably the best organized minority in the history of democracy, American Jews, uh, got wind of this. And they buried it in a very profound way. Um, they not only got it struck from the ballot on a legal technicality, but they made it illegal to put it on the ballot in any other California city. And that has now passed uh, AB 768, I believe is the name of the bill that made that law, that it's now illegal to put circumcision on a ballot in any city in the state of California. So what do I think about it? Um, I think that the San Francisco initiative accomplished two things that were huge successes. Number one, 
they focused the media's attention on this issue for a solid two months. I can't overstate the importance of this. Um, the hardest thing about circumcision is starting the conversation. Once, you, once you've started the conversation, a vast majority of people will be sympathetic to the intactivist cause. But starting the conversation is extremely difficult. So by focusing the media's attention on this for two solid months, they made it much easier for everyone to talk about this. Um, and they raised consciousness to the issue. It, it rose into social consciousness for that period of time. Huge accomplishment. Another accomplishment that doesn't often get discussed, um, and I should attribute this to um, some of my friends on Facebook who have been listening to these podcasts and said, you know, this is something else we did that you should talk about. Um, and I think it's true. Um, they, they shifted the discourse a little bit. If we think about the history of the way circumcision has been thought of in this country, I think you can think of sort of three phases over the last few decades. The first phase is it was not even thought about, except by a few outliers. It was not discussed. It was not thought about. Um, that started to shift, I think, especially after the American Academy of Pediatrics 1999 policy statement on circumcision, which all of a sudden made it clear that the medical rationale for this was kind of weak and that, um, you know, they, they were kind of wishy-washy about it. And they said, you know, there, there are potential medical benefits, not enough to recommend it routinely, but it should be left up to parents uh, to make on other non-medical, uh, the decision on other non-medical grounds. At that point, we had a shift in our culture to starting to think about circumcision First of all, thinking about circumcision and thinking about it um, from the perspective of, well, it's a parent's right to make this decision for their child. Um, and it's not entirely clear what that decision should be, but the parent should have the right to make that decision. What the guys in San Francisco did was they shifted that discussion even further to do parents have the right to make this decision for their children or not? By, by proposing a law that would make it illegal to uh, circumcise anyone under the age of 18, the discourse has, then, has now shifted to a debate about whether or not it's ethically permissible to do this to a baby. And that shift, I think, uh, rightly deserves acknowledgement. Now, again, there was a huge backlash. Um, the ADL um, did their job and found some unsavory um, uh, intactivist literature, uh, namely the Foreskin Man comics, and they used it very, very well. Um, I think there are a number of concrete uh, results to their finding that. I mean, there was a, a similar initiative in um, Santa Monica uh, around this issue, and after the Foreskin Man debacle came to light, after the ADL brought it to the public's attention, she withdrew her ballot initiative. Uh, and we don't know how it would have gone there. Uh, probably would have had the same fate. But again, that's a concrete result of this Foreskin Man debacle. Um, and of course, now it's, now it's now illegal to put this on the ballot, as I said, statewide. So, you know, two steps forward, one step back kind of thing. Um, but overall, it's hard to argue with the fact that um, people are thinking about this more and in a more sophisticated way than they had before. 
and the sorts of um, shrill voices that you hear from people like the ADL or other Jewish leaders. I had a debate earlier this summer with uh, a celebrity rabbi named Shmuley Boteach, who uh, made the, 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 the claim that the motivating factor behind uh, you know, the intactivists who did this, uh, put forth this ballot initiative in San Francisco was a radical secularist agenda. Um, these sorts of arguments are sounding less and less convincing as time goes by. Um, and so I think an enormous amount of progress was made over the summer. I would just like to add that for that ballot proposal to get, uh, as far as it did, 8% of the people who voted in the last mayoral election in California, a number equal to that many, 8%, signed that petition. That's a lot of people who were willing to say circumcision should be banned in our town. I mean, so those, those people have a lot to be proud of, even if it resulted in something sort of going backward. Were you about to? I oh, oh, okay. Did you want the mic? I'm going to have, but I'll, I'll say something first. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I wanted to refer a little more to uh, different forms that uh, linkage to other people of good spirit can take. Uh, I've been doing this for many, many years. Some of the people who uh, helped me are, are no longer living, in fact. Um, but uh, one of the things is to see what other kinds of people are of good spirit and, and, and find them and work with them. I spoke once for two hours to a workshop at the Midwives Alliance of North America. I was about the only guy there, woman who advised me on what to do. She said, the first thing you need to do is to point out that no circ that I represent is in common cause with women's rights in Africa. It's one of the things that, that we have done. And this is important, it's a way to start. You know, we're interested in protecting people, males and females, equally. So, something to say. Also, that we are interested in science. People often say, well, what if the science turns against you? Well, then we have another view, you know. Uh, but another is reporters. We're going to talk to a lot of reporters. I've done radio, TV, you know, we all have. Um, and uh, when we work with the media, People in media usually, I have, my experience has been, they tend to be open-minded. People who do it because they're inquisitive. They're, they're, they're curious. And they want to hear something that's different. So we give them something that's different that they often haven't heard before. So th that's another group to link with. So th there are quite a few, and it's, it's work is great. Um, getting back to um, the, the Anti-Defamation League. Sure. Um, I've noticed that when measures to ban circumcision in both the United States and Sweden have come up, that Jewish activist groups will comment that these are the first laws since the Holocaust that have been proposed to restrict Jewish rights. How do you respond to that? Um, I'll probably get into trouble here, but um, I... I am really very, very wary of using the Holocaust for political purpose. Um, I think it's done way too often. Uh, I further think that the uh, invocation of anti-Semitism as a criticism uh, of people who are doing something that you don't want them to do, um, while you know I take anti-Semitism very seriously, 
I think there's an element in this country of crying wolf a little bit around that issue. And I think that that's damaging both to the seriousness that I bring when I talk about the prejudice of anti-Semitism and to the, uh, to the legacy of the Holocaust, which I take very seriously. Um, and so it makes me very uncomfortable when American Jews or Israelis or Jews anywhere in the world um, are sort of light on the trigger with the anti-Semitism accusation. And I, I would include um, the sort of ways in which, um, you know, this, this issue has been treated. Um, I think it's just very easy to jump to that. And, you know, I got to say, there's a really important difference between the United States and Europe when it comes to anti-Semitism. And personally, I'm more inclined to believe accusations of anti-Semitism coming from Europe than the United States, just because of my familiarity with the two cultures. Um, which is not to suggest that every anti-circumcision measure in Europe can be attributed to this, or that even most of them could be attributed to anti-Semitism. But I have experienced, I've personally experienced anti-Semitism in Europe, in different countries. Uh, it's a real thing there. It has religious roots that go back very, very far, and it runs very deep. Um, I have not had that experience in the United States. Uh, this, you know, I've been on the road now for six months, and I've been hosted by um, a number of non-Jewish strangers in some pretty remote places in the country, and I have not experienced in the last six weeks, just as a simple example, an ounce of anti-Semitism from anyone anywhere. I'm a pretty, uh, pretty obviously Jewish. Um, so I think there's an important distinction to be made between what goes on in Europe, what goes on in the United States. I also am very, very careful um, at levying the charge of anti-Semitism. And I would take that further and say that if it does come to light that someone or something um, is anti-Semitic, um, in particular someone, um, my inclination is not to castigate and ostracize them. Uh, uh, I think that's just the wrong way to go about helping people. If a problem, if a person has a, a problem with racial prejudice, and I think culturally we all, to some extent, have problems with racial prejudice, the, the solution is not to, um, to denounce them and to ostracize them. The solution is to help them and to encounter them in a, in a kind and loving way and explain why you know, their ideas about certain things are, don't line up with reality. This might be a segue to the next segment since you're going to show us that trailer on, on uh, Israel-Palestine. Yep. Um, Jewish Voice for Peace warns us that anti-Semitism tends to be leveled at anybody who opposes the occupation of, of Palestine by Israel. Has that been your experience as well? <laughs> Yes, um, not any. I mean, that's a bit of a sweeping statement. Um, and I appreciate the work that Jewish Voices for Peace do. I think they're very brave. Um, yeah, uh, you know, that's where it's most prominent, these accusations of anti-Semitism. And that's also what has caused um, people who are concerned with actual real anti-Semitism to lose a lot of sleep because when you just levy it at anyone who criticizes Israel, which a lot of Jewish organizations these days do, you end up 
diverting attention from the real problem and um, and crying wolf I, I, I really I I feel like you're crying I, I feel like a lot of these groups and a lot of American Jews sort of engage in this because it's a very easy way to shut down a discussion you accuse someone of anti-semitism and that's kind of the end of the discussion now it's a lot harder to accuse me of anti-Semitism because I'm so Jewy. Um, so what they'll do then is they'll say, well, you're just a self-hating Jew. And my response to that sort of bizarre characterization is, do I look like Woody Allen? But, um, but in, in all seriousness, I just, um, yeah, it's one of the great challenges that I have in talking seriously about serious issues um, with American Jews. Please use the microphone. Sorry. It's recording. Oh, hi. Um, I walked in a bit late. I'm just curious. I've never actually seen a conversation about circumcision shut down by religion. Uh, is it, like, how would that go? Like, uh, somebody says, oh, I'm against circumcision, and they say, well, that's just being against our religion, and... Well, um... I mean, it, yeah. as I've seen it, it's like you're just, it's another excuse for religion to uh, excuse a violent act, as far as I've ever been concerned. I, Right. Just how does that actually right. work? Well, I think a really good uh, example it's of it is the debate I had earlier in the summer with Rabbi Shmuel Boteach when I made a very carefully reasoned uh, opening statement uh, in which I brought scientific evidence, I made rational arguments, and uh, Rabbi Boteach held up a picture of Foreskin Man and said, this is what the debate is really about. It's a radical secularist agenda. It's anti-religious. Um, and that's what these people are really after. They're, they're after our religion. Now, you know, a rational person listening to that might sort of think, huh, that's kind of a strange argument. But that happens. Um, and it happened this summer a lot. Um, and what was striking to me about this is that I'm really familiar with intactivists now. You might call me an intactivist expert at this point in time. I've sort of toured the country and actually lived with intactivists and met a lot of the prominent intactivists in this country and in Canada. And um, my experience is that with uh, a few notable exceptions on the margins that I've noticed online in online discussions, I, I have yet to encounter any significant amount of anti-Semitism among any of the intactivists that I've spent time with. Um, there, again, I have seen some troubling things online and um, you know, I'm sure that I wouldn't make a blanket statement like, you know, that there, are, there, are, there is no such thing as anti-Semitism among intactivists. But it's striking to me that anyone could be so wrong about a movement that I'm this familiar with. Um, and so there are two possibilities, right? Number one, they could honestly believe that this is what's motive, the motivating force behind intactivism and people who are fighting for, you know, genital integrity. And number two, um, which is the less generous interpretation, is that they're cynically using that as a, a sort of way of shutting down the conversation. And I leave it up to others to judge um, where their motives come from. Do the, are these people usually aware that, this, that Judaism is not the only religion that demands circumcision? They are. Something really interesting happened around the, the people who opposed um, the San Francisco Ballot Initiative this uh, summer, which is that Jews and Muslims in this country actually work together for the first time. <laughs> um, I mean, it's not, you know, the only time, but it's, it's a pretty rare occurrence. Um, 
but they see it as an attack on religion. Um, in Europe, they see it that way too. They sort of tie it to a larger discourse around the sorts of things that go on in France, right? Where, um, you know, the French government is sort of a very radical secular approach to religion, you know, banning things like the hijab and, um, you know, so they try and tie it to this, like, you know, they, they have this... <laughs> this weird idea that there's like this global secularist movement that's out to destroy religion. And, you know, people like Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris kind of uh, sort of, you know, they don't entirely justify what they're, the caricature that they're portraying, but, you know, they sort of uh, serve as fodder for this worldview that like, you know, there's this impending atheist threat that's coming to take away your religion. And of course, m most atheists, uh, as far as I know, um, sort of believe in freedom of religion, separation of church and state, which actually, you know, in, when people, in discussions about separation of church and state, um, people often talk about the, the corrupting effect that religion has on the state, but they forget to talk about the corrupting effect that the state has on religion. Um, and that the separation is as important for religious people as it is for secular people. So, uh, on the separation of church and state, this is totally different, but where the phrase originally came from, it was Thomas, and Thomas Jefferson's letters, and it was for protecting religion from the state. Yeah. Uh, okay, uh, in regards to Judaism and Jewish circumcision specifically, do you think, or what are the best ways to go about convincing Jews and approaching Jews on this subject? And do you, th what, would you say that some Orthodox Jews could be convinced, or would you say it's only Reformed, Conservative, Reconstructionist, et cetera? Um, I, first guideline, leave it to Jews who are opposed to the practice. That's just like, just, if, if you're not Jewish, my advice is to, to, to punt to the, the Jews who are against this practice, like myself and there, there are other prominent Jews who are against it. Um, it just makes it that much easier to have a discussion makes it that much harder for the people talking to us to just dismiss it out of hand as anti-Semitism or a lack of familiarity with the culture. I would also say that you owe it to yourself if you're at all going to, if you think you're at all going to engage Jews to familiarize yourself with um, and educate yourself in the, the particulars, like all the details about the ritual and the place that it holds within the Jewish tradition, just so that you can show to someone you might be talking to that you've taken the time to do that and that you're being respectful and not just sort of willy-nilly, you know, without any understanding, you know, asking that they change something that central. And it is a central Jewish practice. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, do I think I'm going to be able to convince Orthodox people? I'll tell you what, uh, the liberal Jews that I interviewed in the film were supremely disappointing compared to the Orthodox Jews that I spoke to. And this may just be a, a bias of my upbringing, but I found um, the Orthodox people that I spoke to, and I continue to find this to be much more honest about this issue and have much more consistent positions. They don't hide behind things like medical benefits. Um, they don't prevaricate. They don't, you know, it's like, okay, so if you present me with information, then I need to, I need, I need to digest it. And I, um, and, and at that point, you have two options. This is kind of what I'm pushing in my film, right? Uh, when I'm talking to, to, to my people, is that if you accept the evidence that I bring in the film, you have two possibilities. Again, if you're not quibbling with me about, you know, uh, whether this has a profound effect on male sexual experience, and you're not quibbling with me about the, 
the, the, the medical benefits, you accept what I'm saying, basically, more or less, then you have two possibilities. The possibility number one is that being Jewish means doing what God told you to do, um, you know, without question. And that perspective is presented in the film, and it's, um, it's consistent. I call that fundamentalism. Um, I don't think most, most Jews want to see themselves that way, and I don't think most Jews have the commitment necessary to be uh, fundamentalists. Um, and the other possibility and the other option is what I'm pushing, <laughs> which is that the Jewish tradition is great precisely because it has the flexibility to change with changing moral standards, that, it had, that it's a dynamic process of struggling between past and present, and that it has um, the it has the cojones to make the important changes necessary to remain relevant. Those are the possibilities, and that's sort of what I try to present to people. I'm going to add, with, with respect to uh, encountering Jews and, and talking to them about this, I've been to intactivist functions on more than one continent, you know, in many states, and because this question has come up so many times, I've made a habit of taking a show of hands. Let's see the Jews in the house, you know, is basically what I'll say. I'm not less slangy kind of a, a manner, but anyway, and what I've found is people who have traveled a great distance at their own personal expense to learn more about intactivism, uh, the population of those people is between 15 and 20 percent Jewish, no matter what event you go to, at least in North America or the UK. Okay, the population of Jews in the United States is debatably around 2 percent that's maybe right. maybe three. So there are more than enough Jews to advocate amongst Jews. So I, I echo Ailey's advice to leave it to Jews to argue with Jews and deal with non-Jewish elements of the argument if, if it comes up. That's our show. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please email them to us at cutdocumentary at gmail.com. And if you like what you've heard today, please support us by buying our film at www.cutthefilm.com.